everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. Today's guest on Attendance Bias is Dave Waxman. Dave is a former employee of Dry Goods. He worked at a bar in Burlington with Fish Road Manager Jason Colton, and he also recently created a merchandise website called Maybe So, Maybe Lot. While I was promoting a earlier episode of Attendance Bias, Dave messaged me and asked that if I ever wanted someone to discuss the version of Waste from August 9th, 1998 at the Virginia Beach Amphitheater, I should call on him. Waste seems like a somewhat disposable song, and especially from that show in Virginia where the band broke out the Terrapin Station Encore, I thought this is so interesting to talk about Waste over Terrapin Station, I have to get in touch with him and we'll figure it out later. After I listened to Waste, it became really obvious why Dave wanted to discuss it, and we'll get into that a little bit later. However, we also talk about how it would be almost naive of us, or even stubborn, to not bring up the Terrapin Station encore at that same show in Virginia Beach. So let's get into it with Dave Waxman, formerly of Dry Goods, and currently of Maybe So, Maybe Lot. Let's meet today's guest. Dave Waxman, welcome to Attendance Bias. Brian, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Great to see you. It's great to see you, too. For this episode, we are talking about a fan favorite show, but I think an underrepresented part of that show. When we talk about August 9th, 1998 at the Virginia Beach Amphitheater, I think everybody's head goes to Terrapin Station, right? How can it not? It's one of the greatest, one of the most iconic encores certainly Fish has ever played. Definitely. And the show itself overall is outstanding. It's one of the best. That whole summer is fantastic. But when you messaged me, you told me that if I ever want to talk about the waste from this show to call on you. And I thought that is very interesting because I could imagine a hundred people asking me to talk about Terrapin Station, but you came from another angle and we'll get into waste a little bit later. But I think it would be wrong of us, dare I say, to not acknowledge Terrapin Station, right? I, I think it would be criminal not to discuss Terrapin Station. It was without question. There are new goosebumps to describe the amount of goosebumps that that venue had <laughs> when that first riff was played. It, it, it was uh, really something that I don't think anyone there would ever forget. So we certainly need to discuss it. And we'll recreate those goosebumps in just a little bit. But before we do that, let's get to know you a little bit. And we'll start with the attendance bias lightning round. Attendance bias lightning round. So, Dave, when was your first fish show? My first fish show was uh, December 15th, 1995. 12, 15, 95. It was at the Philadelphia Spectrum, one of my favorite venues to ever see a fish show at. Great show. I, I was getting into the band. I was very unsure of what I was about to step into. They opened with Chalk Dust. There was an amazing Harry Hood second set or second song uh, set to actually open with Tweezer Reprise, believe it or not. And then the encore was Good Times, Bad Times into Tweezer Reprise. So immediately after one show, my stats were permanently screwed up with my Tweezer Reprise. To Tweezer. <laughs> but it was a great start. And, uh, I just couldn't wait to get back. It sounds like that's a very electric guitar, rock and roll heavy show. It was pretty hardcore. It was, 
in my brain at the time, something that couldn't be produced by human beings. <laughs> That's how I feel at almost every single show. And I still, I still feel that way at every show. What is your favorite venue? That's a really tough question. Hampton Coliseum is amazing. It, 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 general admission, tiny venue, incredible crowd, amazing security, believe it or not. And they've gotten better over the years, I think. It's just so fun. It's so electric. And I can't remember seeing a fish show at Hampton that wasn't a 10 out of 10. They just kill it. I've only been to Hampton once. I've only been inside of Hampton once. This was during the return in 2009. I was there for the whole weekend. I only had tickets for night three. But the scene around it was so phenomenal all weekend. Outside, it wasn't... It wasn't quite a festival setting, but it had that same laid back vibe where there's that the hotel that's right next to it. There is a fountain in the front. There's a there's a huge pond right around it. It was like where we should be. This is where fish should play. They could play there every night of the year. And unfortunately, I'd have to quit my job and move to Virginia. (laughs) All else being equal, would you take indoor fish or outdoor fish? With the exception of Mexico, indoor fish every time. If Mexico is part of the equation, much more difficult answer. Yeah, I agree. If you had a time travel machine and you could go back to any fish show that you've ever attended, aside from the one we're talking about today, not Virginia Beach, that one's excluded, which one would you use your time machine to see again? This might be the easiest question I've ever been asked in my life. Um, (laughs) How about Big Cypress? Let's go with Big Cypress. Uh, What's your overall favorite fish year? Boy, that is not an easy question. Um, I really liked 97. I really like 99. I really like some of the stuff that's come out in the last three or four years. Uh, it's it's going to, I'm going to deflect. But 98 is definitely up there. And in my eyes, very underappreciated, particularly given where it was in their musical career. The show's over. You just got out of the parking lot. What is your favorite post-show snack? <laughs> Uh, a beer and something in the lot served by somebody that isn't overly dirty. <laughs> Good luck. Or, or, yeah, well, or, or pizza. We would either stick around and find something edible uh, or, or frequently we'd find a, a late night hangout. And it's typically pizza. What is the weirdest thing you've ever seen at a fish show before a fish show or after a fish show? <laughs> uh I'll go with during the fish show, actually. All right. I was sitting, standing, I should say. This was in Camden. Uh, a friend of mine, Brian, uh, who I know actually is part of the story, was standing with Brian in, a, in, a, uh, in the lawn at, at Camden. I don't remember which name Camden was in. This was 99, maybe. Uh, and Brian had brought a goo ball in that he was very excited about from the parking lot. And uh, about three songs in, he's gnawing on this goo ball. And he gets about halfway through it, and he pulls out a uh, a Band-Aid, <sighs> a, a used Band-Aid that clearly someone had not intended to put in the goo ball, but had lost in the goo ball making process. And uh, we were coiled in horror for a while, and the next thing I know, he had removed the Band-Aid and finished the goo ball. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but it was it was pretty weird at the time. You know, I'll say... As a fellow Brian, I will give him lots of kudos for either his ignorance or his bravery or a mix of the two. And I will also say in the past year and a half, 
he's got nothing to worry about when it comes to coronavirus or vaccines or anything moving forward. He's going to be perfectly fine. If he can eat a goo ball made with a Band-Aid and make it through the show, I want that immune system. He may have been the first human on the planet successfully vaccinated for COVID <laughs> 20 years before it even happened. And the secret ingredient is a used Band-Aid and a ganja goo ball. Dr. Fauci, are you listening? <laughs> are you wearing my shirt, Fauci? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit. Recently, I think it was recently, I've recently heard about it. You launched an online store called Maybe So, Maybe Lots. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, it, it's it's not so much a store as a hobby. Uh, it's an Etsy shop. Uh, it actually goes back a really long time, uh, way before Etsy, way before uh, Amazon and buying things online. Uh, and uh, it was actually the summer after this 98 run we're talking about. Uh, my friend uh, Josh and I realized rather quickly that if we were going to go to more than three or four concerts and drive around the country seeing fish, we were going to need to figure out some way to make some money to fill the gas tank and buy the tickets. And so we designed a uh, our first lot T-shirt. Uh, I think it was, it was the summer of 99. I think we did it at Lakewood Amphitheater. And it was awesome. We We sold all these T-shirts. And really enjoyed it and made a little bit of money. It was enough to cover some expenses and we kept doing it. And we went to Cyprus with some and made a few along the way for important festivals or events. Uh, and then obviously fish took a hiatus and then eventually uh, broke up. And it wasn't until they got back together in, in 09 and we thought, all right, we should, we should really start doing this uh, in a different way. And so we make a shirt when we come up with an idea uh, typically, we make a pretty small run of them. Uh, we'll bring them to a concert, and hopefully they sell, and usually they do. And then we donate a uh, dollar from every shirt we make, either to, well, formally to the Mockingbird Foundation, currently to the Divided Sky Fund. And it's just a nice way to uh, spend time in a parking lot before a show, seeing people, meeting people, running into people you haven't seen in sometimes decades. I have to be honest, there's very little money in it, but there's a great deal of pleasure in going into a concert and seeing somebody wearing a shirt that you made 10 years ago. Uh, there's what was your money. first shirt? What was the first one that you designed? Do you remember it? Your first yeah. idea? Our very first shirt, uh, I can't believe it actually worked. It was a Visine bottle, um, but that was the front of the shirt. And instead of saying Visine, it said Fluffhead. And it said Summer Tour 99, I guess, with a couple of things reduces redness due to concerts etc and then on, <laughs> on, on the back uh, the line was his eyes were clear and pure but his mind was so deranged and we had no idea what we were doing um, but people liked it and a lot sure it was ten dollars at the time i think they cost about eight bucks to make so we weren't making a lot but it was it was a different time and uh i was gonna ask if i could get two for twenty at the time, you could, yes. <laughs> and then we realized that if they became 15 and you could still get two for 20, you would sell a lot more. So, yes, our, our T-shirt, our lot shirt education evolved uh, through the years. But we've, we've probably done uh, roughly 20 shirts by now, uh, some more popular than others, but uh, it's great. And we love it. And then we love giving back, too. We, I'm sure we've given thousands of dollars 
over the years, uh, back to Mockingbird or Divided Sky, which is great. It's it's just we love it. It's so much fun. So you started as a vendor in the lot and now you're on Etsy. How could people find you uh, either online or possibly the upcoming tour? We are going to do Alabama up through Nashville uh, and then we'll be in Atlantic City. Hopefully participating, I believe fan art is going to be doing a fan art show for the AC run. Uh, we should be there. Yes, they are. But you could just Google uh, maybe so, maybe a lot on Etsy. Uh, and it should bring you right to us. And whenever we have something to sell, we put it up there. And uh, if it's still available, you can grab one. And the next day, it'll be sent to you. So before you became a vendor, before maybe so, maybe lot existed, how did you get into fish? What was your spark? spark uh so i used to go to summer sports camp uh my parents needed to get rid of me for a week every summer and they would send me to penn state university and i would go to these sports camps uh and one of the counselors uh that oversaw this camp was a college kid and i think it was junta in fact i i would say 99 percent was junta and it was on repeat in this dormitory for the entire week and i didn't know what it was and I didn't like it. And then I started <laughs> to like it. And then by the end of the week, I really, really liked it. Uh, and so I got home. And this is a long time ago. So Columbia House would mail you something. And if you fixed a penny to it, and you mailed it back to them with a bunch of CDs you wanted, they would send them to you. And then you could tell them you were 13 and not pay them. And so somehow, Fish was on one of those. And I, I think it may have been a live one at that point. Maybe I would imagine it would have to be a live one or hoist. It may have been hoist, but it came in and I think it was hoist actually. It came in and that was it. And then that got tied into some friends in high school. We all got into it and uh, the, the match was lit. And <laughs> after that first show, it was uh, burning. Uh, it, it was burning. And so you grew up in the New Jersey suburbs outside Philly. And after college, you moved to Burlington. And when you worked there or when you lived there, correct me if I'm wrong on this timeline, but you got a job working at a bar that was somehow associated with Jason Colton, who was Fish's manager at the time or road manager. Yeah, that, that's, that is exactly it. I, I started actually at a place that is still there and uh, called Ken's Pizza on Church Street. It's a... Uh, bar, pizza shop, institution. It's been there forever. And I worked there for a while. And in between there and where we lived at the time, uh, along my walk home, there was a restaurant that was opening uh, under the name of The Waiting Room. And I applied for a job along with a number of people. And we all started working there. And during the introduction, I remember Jason was there. Anna Rosenblum was, I believe, the, the primary owner. Uh, but Jason Colton had some involvement with the with the restaurant, uh, Alex Brothers, who has ties with Higher Ground, was was there frequently. I don't know their exact financial breakdown of who and what, but uh, Jason was very much uh, involved and, and, and quite a regular there. And it, it didn't hurt that we were a block from Dry Goods, so that made it kind of convenient as well. And you ended up working at Dry Goods, right? That, that actually led into Dry Goods. Uh, this was post-hiatus, uh, pre-breakup. Uh, there were uh, a few positions that opened up that they needed some part-time help at. And in the restaurant industry, you always have time to to have a second job or frequently. And so in my case, I was able to acquire a job at Dry Goods. And so I spent about 
18 months working there from somewhere post it until until the doors were closed, post Coventry. And what was that like? Do you have any good stories from working at Dry Goods? I, I have uh, things I will never forget from working at Dry Goods. Uh, <laughs> Anything that you could tell on a public forum, on a podcast? Uh, yeah, actually, some of it. Uh, not not all of it, but definitely some of it. Uh, I, I do remember walking in for an interview because I found this this job was was opening up and Patty 25, who was running the show at Dry Goods at the time, brought me into her office and introduced herself. And we exchanged pleasantries and she said, uh, okay, you're ready for your interview. I said, I, I think so. And she says, all right, do you like fish at all? Or do you sort of like them? Or are you like crazy, crazy into fish? And I did not know what to say. I had no answer. I froze. And I'd like to, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'd like to ask the audience listening right now, just to picture yourself for a minute. You're at the dry goods office in Burlington. You sit down for an interview and you get that question. Just pop quiz, hotshot. What do you do? Do you, know, do you say, yeah, I'm a huge fan. I'm into them 24 seven. Or do you try and keep your distance and say, I'm here for the business. I'm here to be a good worker. Just take a quick second and ask yourself, what do you do in that situation? Dave, what did you do? What did you say? What you just described went through my brain along with 500 other things <laughs> in the four seconds it took me to decide what to say. Uh, and uh, so I froze like a deer in the headlights. And I said, I have to be honest, I am an enormous fish fan. They're a big part of the reason I live in Burlington, Vermont. I follow them everywhere. This would be a complete honor to work here. I hope that gets me the job. And that was the last question of the interview. That was it. You got the job. That was it. You're hired. Well, you start tomorrow. So anyway, I answered the question correctly, I think. I wonder if that's how they ask all of their employees. And maybe that's why customer service might not be as best as it could be <laughs> at Dragons. Because all you have to do is like fish to work there. Uh, that, that that may be part of it. Although I will say that. But not everyone there was as diehard as 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 I was. But I will. They they absolutely killed it. Everybody showed up for work in a great mood. It was an incredible environment. Nobody ever was fighting. There was no drama like an office job. Uh, it, it was it was just such a wonderful place. I would have paid to work there, and instead I would be getting paid to work for fish. It was surreal and. Absolutely fantastic. Did the band ever come by? Uh, the band was there a lot more than I would have ever imagined. So to paint a picture of dry goods, it's on, it was on Pine Street in Burlington. Uh, it's a big brick building. And if you walk in the main front door, to your left are offices. And it's management uh, and Beth at the, front, uh, at the front counter, who I believe is still there or is still involved. Um, and then if you made a right, it was the merch section, which was basically a warehouse full of the coolest fish gear ever that you would ship to people who wanted them, whether it was a poster or a t-shirt or any of the magnets, any of the things that they sold, everything was stored there. And so I walked in and went right, fish walked in and went left, but in the middle, there was a lunchroom. And so frequently around lunchtime, everyone would get together and after the initial shock of, holy crap, this can't be happening, we're off. It was a very natural interaction. They're the nicest people. 
it, it, it felt very unlike working for a rock band. It was much more like working for a very professional organization with really, really funny people. You started working at Dry Goods a little bit after it. What was it like working there throughout 2.0? But really, I guess what I want to know is what was it like working there after Coventry? Uh, 2.0 was, well, I had started after it. So uh, it was exciting. It was awesome. I couldn't believe that I had my dream job walking distance from uh, from our apartment at the time. And I would spend my days rolling posters or shipping shirts and having the greatest time. Uh, then, obviously, the announcement came out that the end was near. Uh, and there was a definite change of vibe in the building, but there was still very much a family atmosphere and a sense of everything's going to be okay and we're going to get through this. It was just a really, really close group of people. It was a wonderful experience. Post-Coventry was a little unusual uh, in that we got back after Coventry. Coventry was what it was. And we showed up to work and nobody really knew what was going to happen. Because of Coventry, a lot of things had to happen before we shut down. So if you recall, a lot of people, unfortunately, didn't get into Coventry for various reasons. Um, Mud being the primary one, uh, had a car at Coventry, never had that car again. Actually, was towed out backwards and donated to Cars for Kids. Uh, that, was its, that was its final trip. Got back from Coventry the following week. It was it was a bit somber, I guess, but uh, we had a lot to do. We had 11,000 Danny Clinch books come in that needed to be autographed by all four members of the band. I got one of them. Yeah, and sent to the people that didn't make it in. Uh, we had a lot of Coventry posters that needed to be sent out. And if you ever want to know how long it takes to have four people sign 11,000 books, it takes a really long time except for Mike Gordon, who could actually do it in under two days. The rest of them, I'll put it this way. John Fishman may still be signing (laughs) during this interview. Uh, Mike was very swift. John was drawing windmills and uh, writing notes. It was, it was an incredible experience to be honest when it was all said and done and the racks had cleared out and uh, dry goods was locking up a few weeks later, they threw a Christmas party a dry goods fish Christmas party, which happened to be at, at our restaurant at the time. Uh, and I think it was the last time uh, between then and 3.0 uh, that everyone was together in the same place for a significant period of time. It was Amy Skelton, Shapiro, obviously everyone from the band, the kids, uh, family, management, every dry goods employee. It was like, the craziest mashup for me of the restaurant I was working at and the job I was part-timing at, it was just wild. And this, this was pre-cell phones or pre-cell phone cameras, I would say. So I would love to have all of these photographic memories of these, these things for safekeeping, but instead uh, they're just, they're in my brain. I, I do remember though, speaking of cameras that someone had asked to take a final uh, group photo, essentially, uh, of everyone together. And, and so Amy and, and Beth and a, a couple other people handed me cameras to to take a, a, a group photo of, of everyone. And so we all got together, everyone except me got together and huddled up and 
I remember at the moment I thought this this is it like this is the joke and I was like all right everybody say cheesecake and they all said <laughs> cheesecake and I didn't take the picture and I'm like you gotta say it like you're pissed yeah he <laughs> said cheesecake and actually the photo was amazing I never did get a copy of this picture uh, so if anybody out there from Dry Goods Circa that year happens to have a copy of it I would really really love it it was just an incredible evening, such a lovely finale to everything. Uh, and then that was it. Everyone went their separate ways until, uh, geez, 2009, I guess. When was this show played? So before we get into August 9th, let's take a look at the summer of 1998 as a whole. And I feel like we could talk about 1998 for an entire hour. We don't have that sort of time, but let's focus on its colloquial name, the name that at least I know it as, and I'm sure many others do, as the summer of covers. I didn't see any shows on this tour. I remember following the set lists on fish.net or more likely at the time, Andy Gadiel's page, I would guess. So following all the set lists, it seems like, um, at Ventura, the Ventura County Fairgrounds in California, that they played sexual healing. I think that was the first time they did it with Fishman uh, as the lead. Obviously, it was a great joke. That wasn't the end of it, though. Like, that was I, probably it was their one idea, like, hey, let's cover sexual healing. But what would be really funny is if Fishman did it. But they followed up a few days later in Dallas at the Starplex Amphitheater, and they played Albuquerque by Neil Young, which was, I think, also a debut. And then the whole idea of covering one-off songs. But it seems like the summer of covers kind of started as it started slow and then caught fire. And the list that I came up with is they played If You Need a Fool at Riverport, been caught stealing at Alpine Valley, and they played that a couple more times that year. And thereafter, uh, I get a kick out of you at Deer Creek, Rhinoceros at Deer Creek, which I think lives on in legend, I think, you know, if people could take a vote, what song do you want them to play again? Maybe other than Terrapin Station, it would probably be Rhinoceros by the Smashing Pumpkins. Running with the Devil at Lakewood. Sabotage at Merriweather Post, with hat, which had that uh, mosh pit encore that I was not present for, but heard all about it. And then today, the summer of covers peaked, I think it's fair to say, with Terrapin Station during the encore in Virginia Beach. I agree with everything you just said. I think summer 98 had a lot going for it fish-wise. Um, looking back, this was a, a pretty extensive tour. So they started in, boy, in Europe. I don't recall the first venue, but they did eight or nine shows in, in Europe. Uh, and then within a week, they started a fairly lengthy summer tour in the United States on the West Coast. So somehow they got from, I want to say, Spain to Oregon in the span of about five days and then played ballpark a 23 show summer tour in the course of a month and a half. Unlike now where we're all older and really happy to stay at a specific venue for two or three or possibly four nights. This was 98 and they were trying to build their fan base. They were trying to hit as many places as possible. So You'd have to fact check this, but I want to say of that 23 show summer tour, there must have been 20 different venues. 
there were very few two night runs. I don't think there was a single three night run. And it was just one after the other, after the other. And obviously we were all younger then, uh, but anyone that could have done this tour must have been exhausted. I don't know how anyone could get, <laughs> could, could, have pulled, could pull this one off. And the obstinate focus of today's episode is waste from August 9th, 98. Like we said at the very beginning of the show, it would be almost stubborn of us not to acknowledge the encore of Terrapin Station, which on one hand did match this whole trend of having a different cover every night. And on the other hand, meant much more than that, that it was number one on the 30th at 30th. I'm sorry. Third anniversary of Jerry Garcia's death of August 9th. And it was kind of a dream encore. You know, Fish could have played any Grateful Dead song. They could have played Ripple. They could have played Truckin'. They could have played any number one, I would guess, that really was the focus of a Jerry Garcia song. A Terrapin Station matches so much of what Fish is like. It's got that kind of Robert Hunter slash Tom Marshall, weird, opaque imagery and not this kind of straightforward lyrical story. It's not like that. It has different compositional parts or sections that don't quite match one another, but they somehow still fit together. What else do you remember in addition to the goosebumps when Trey started playing the Terrapin Station opening riff? I'll start with the the night prior. So the, the Sabotage Encore at Meriwether Post Pavilion, which you mentioned had the legendary mosh pit and uh, subsequently quite a lot scene outside afterwards. Uh, nobody really knew what to expect. There was talk of this tour. And, and again, we're going back 23 years. So we're, we're collecting information on fish through Gadiel's fish page. And maybe Fishnet was in its infancy. There may have been a companion out there, but we really did not have the type of knowledge accessible to us now at our fingertips. That It just wasn't there. And so I remember vividly throughout that group of shows, the talk of the, of the lot was, I think this is their thousandth concert. I think that this is their thousandth show. They're finally playing their thousandth show. And it was rumored that it was at Meriwether Post Pavilion. And then it was rumored that it was at Vernon Downs. And, and it was also rumored that it was going to be in Virginia. And so there was that going on. Are they going to do something for their, for their thousandth show? Clearly everybody there was a dead fan at one point or another and knew that the third anniversary of Jerry's death was falling uh, that evening. We also knew it was the summer of the covers. It was this incredible tour where they were just getting hotter and hotter and seemingly covering whatever they wanted to perfection. And to be honest, when they did the Over the Rainbow, which I'm sure we'll touch on soon, somewhere Over the Rainbow, people really thought that was a tribute to Jerry and a fitting tribute and, and a classy tribute at that. And so w- nobody really expected Fish to play Terrapin Station, to play any dead song, because this is 1998. They were intentionally staying as far away from the Grateful Dead as they could. It, it, there was a crossover that had not happened yet. This predates Phil and Friends with Paige and, and Trey. Uh, it predates everything, obviously, that has happened since. Uh, but at the time, Fish wasn't playing The Grateful Dead. They were very, very carefully not playing it and, and trying to separate themselves. And so to hear that opening riff 
uh, was uh, shocking. Unbelievable! It, it was it was a state of disbelief, and uh, in in the recording, uh, which I have, I must have heard five hundred times by now. <laughs> you can clearly hear Trey take a deep breath and play that first riff, very very patiently, very quietly, and very few people actually react immediately. There's a about a half a second between when that happens. And when the first few people realize what's about to go down. And then subsequently, I, I will never forget the waves of people that realize what is happening. And by the time the, he gets to, to the lyrics, in my entire life, I've never been in a place where people were, I would say, hugging and crying and laughing and screaming. It was an absolute moment of pure joy for everybody in attendance. The closest parallel that I could think of, and I wasn't at either of these shows, would be a little bit later that year in November, November 2nd, 98, in Salt Lake City, when they played Dark Side of the Moon inside Harpua. And when you listen to that show, they open with Harpua, and then they play Breathe, right? I think that's the opening song of Dark Side. And then everyone thinks it's going to be over, after the sunken magic spell, and then they go into speak to me. And that's when you could hear it. You could, oh, if you could read the mind of a collective crowd, you could say, oh my God, they're actually playing the whole album as opposed to just kind of a goof on the opening song to fake us out. Like they did in Halloween 95 with Thriller, you know, it was a fake out. That time it wasn't really a joke. And Terrapin Station's like, holy shit, they're actually doing it. I love your comparison. It's so accurate. And, and I regret so much not attending, uh, that, that dark side show. Uh, it's amazing on tape, but I, it's audible on tape. Just as you said that it's very clear that that audience thinks that they're going to play the first song and then they're going to go back in to finish our poo. And then as they go through it, you're right. Oh my God, maybe they'll play it. And there's an eruption on that tape that is potentially only equal by this Terrapin Station eruption. Yeah, there aren't a lot of shows that I get goosebumps listening to that I wasn't personally at, but the one you just mentioned, that Dark Side show, to play Four Nights in Vegas, cover an album, drive a thousand miles, and then do that, <laughs> it's pretty solid. It's, yeah. it's, it's a hell of a way to cap off a summer under the covers. 
could spend the whole episode just talking about Terrapin and how that kind of broke the ice where they would then guest with Phil and friends later, leading all the way up through the years through different switch offs and guest spots all the way to fare thee well. And as recently as I think it was 2016, when Bob Weir came on in Nashville to play a series of Grateful Dead songs and miss you, that could take up probably a whole series of a podcast. But when you messaged me to be on this podcast, you mentioned waste from this show, the Virginia Beach show. What is it about waste that caught your attention? Why did you pick waste from this show? I love this question. Um, first of all, I just think waste is such a beautiful song. To me, it's it's got some of Tom's most mature and inspiring lyrics, particularly from that era, much more like some of the stuff he's writing now. I'm a huge fan of Sigma Oasis. And to me, waste would even fit on Sigma Oasis. It's, it's really a very mature, very well-written, very relatable song. But typically, waste is waste. It can fit in the first set. It can fit in the second set. It can be an encore. It can go anywhere. Nobody doesn't like it. It's a great song. But typically, it's fairly similar to every other waste. It's, it's, it's great. But this one was not. Yeah, I noticed that when I was listening to the whole show, it comes out of a sedate Brian and Robert, right? Brian and Robert was kind of the cool down song because the opening of the set was ACDC Bag, Sparkle and Antelope. Three really high energy, fast, upbeat songs that you do need a cool down for it. And then Brian and Robert was played and you figure, all right, now they'll pick it up again. But then Waste is played, you know, so it's kind of two softer songs in a row, which when it comes to... I would imagine Trey is the one directing traffic up there in regards to the set list. That's kind of unusual in itself that he would play to forgive the phrase downer songs in a row, you know, kind of two lower key songs in a row, but he did. And Trey, I noticed listening, he begins the song solo and then each band member joins in one by one. But other than that notice until later in the song, but up to about a minute and a half, to me, it's like a pretty rote and generic version of Waste. Completely. 
So uh, to back up just a second, the ACDC bag that opened that that set to me was as good as any fish I've heard, maybe ever. It's it's outstanding. It goes type two. It stays there. It's one of those songs that even the most seasoned vet, if you put that song on 11 minutes into it, would have no idea what song is being played. It was spectacular and a complete heater. Uh, I think Sparkle followed that up, which at the time was a popular tune. Less so now. I'm not sure why, but still upbeat. And then Antelope, which is your typical blistering Antelope. And, and so by the time Antelope comes to an end, you're absolutely right. People, the crowd, the band, everybody needed a break. And, and Brian and Robert love the tune, was absolutely the bathroom song of, of, of the set. It, it had to be. Yeah, um, there, there. People needed to to reassess where they were to 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 come down from the forty five minutes of chaos that was uh, that preceded that. And and quite frankly, I don't think anybody expected waste to follow Brian and Robert after an opening frame like that. And so, I agree with you. It was almost like what an unusual song choice to put deep in a second set after Brian and Robert. And about two minutes and 50 seconds, approximately, there's a very beautiful piano solo by Page, which leads into the B section of the song. And again, nothing different. You know, Page is perfect, and it's the part that we all love. But again, like you said, if you're in the bathroom, you wouldn't have missed anything that you hadn't heard before. And even all the way up to close to five minutes, there's nothing different. Uh, Typical beginning of the waste guitar riff, although things start to change a little bit before five minutes. You noted it in our in our notes back and forth. What did you notice a little bit before five minutes? So to me, I agree completely. I, I thought it was a very patient but very traditional waste. And, and I think people were probably coming back from the bar, coming back from the bathroom, because Brian and Robert is not a long song. And so the beginning, people are finding their friends. This is, again... You don't have cell phones. You don't have GPS. You're, you're, you're on your own. I'm going to go there. I hope I get back in time. And people were finding their way back, and uh, as, as did I. And so I, I missed about the first three minutes. But upon a re-listen, it's very traditional. What hit me was the solo, specifically Trey's solo in this version. He was so good, this tour. His tone was so good. But this specific solo starting around maybe four minutes, 405 somewhere. It's just laser beams. It is these notes that sound like laser beams. It was so clear. juxtaposition to a grand piano solo that preceded it. It was just perfect. And then things get better than perfect. 
very soon after, right? Closer to five and a half minutes. And it's only a difference of about 30 seconds between the beginning of the waste guitar. So the typical one that we're all familiar with off the album, and then things get a little different. It's almost like Trey invents this beautiful fluid riff. It still sounds like waste, but it's new. It's still new. It's almost like he was inventing this new part of the song on the spot. And I was walk as I always do walking my dog while listening to this it sounds too practiced it almost sounds too smooth to be straight improv but I think we know better than that by now that they're just too damn good at this that it's it's too good to be improv but it's too fresh to be practiced it's like somewhere in that uncanny valley of fish jamming there is something to that solo and and I've listened to it and listen to it. And preparing for this, I've listened to it again and again. And I don't understand how any mortal can play that many notes on a guitar that actually sound good in that period of time. And to do it delicately and perfectly and build up to this crescendo that is mind-boggling to this day. Yeah, and it's perfectly phrased also. It fits right in. It, it sounds like you wrote another song. You absolutely nailed it. But they never played it like that ever since. And to wrap the whole thing up, they come back to the usual coda of Waste. And the song itself ends, sure. But I think the real coda to this version of Waste came next when there was an absolutely perfect performance of Somewhere Over the Rainbow, the old song from The Wizard of Oz, which to me, and I think this was also mentioned in one of the Fish Almanacs, maybe volume six, that it sounded like that itself could have been the tribute to Jerry Garcia. And let's remind people who aren't too familiar with the set list, Terrapin Station was the encore, so no one had any idea that was coming. So if the the set ended, or even the show, just for argument's sake, if it ended after this performance of Somewhere Over the Rainbow, people might still walk out with a couple tears saying what a beautiful, appropriate tribute to Jerry Garcia without being so on the nose by playing the Grateful Dead itself.
was touched listening to it, however many decades later it is anyway. What was the vibe in the venue? Do you remember? Vividly. I remember really great fish concerts because I can remember exactly where I was at the time. And there are maybe a couple dozen of those moments burned into my brain. And, and this one was burned into it. And I was lower lawn, dead center. And everyone at the time thought it was a full moon. I, I don't think it was because I know Walnut Creek Trey had some sort of Harpua reference to a full moon and a lunar eclipse, which was the night before. I don't think it was that night either. I actually think it was somewhere in between. I want to say it was a full moon on the sabotage night, but it was darn close to a full moon. It was incredibly quiet. And half of the venue turned around to watch the moon and listen to this unbelievably patient and quiet performance of Somewhere Under the Rainbow, which at the time was clearly what we were getting as a treat that night in honor of, of Jerry's passing. Right. In addition to the summer of covers. And, and at that point, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think they had played a single cover to that point in the entire show. So people are patiently saying, okay, well, what's it going to be? What are we going to hear? And, and they played, to be fair, they'd played somewhere under the rainbow before, but yeah, boy, it had been, I don't know, a hundred shows, 150. It had to be 96. And I don't know if they played it since maybe once or twice, maybe not. But at the time it absolutely was considered the tribute and, and a very classy and fitting tribute without overstepping. So Dave Waxman, thank you so much for being on Attendance Bias. Before we say goodbye, remind everyone listening again about Maybe So, Maybe Lot, where they could find you online and hopefully where they could find you this summer. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, uh, I will be in Alabama. You'll see my smiling face at Alpharetta and in Nashville, Atlantic City. Uh, and periodically after that as well. I'm sure I'm missing some. Uh, you can always find us on Maybe So, Maybe Lot. We're on Etsy. Uh, I'm not sure what exactly we have up there now. Uh, we're kind of gearing up. We actually just yesterday have a pretty cool new design, which will go up next week, which I'm really excited about. But that's for next week. All right. Thanks so much, Dave. Brian, this has been an absolute pleasure. So great talking to you. I have goosebumps thinking about this concert <laughs> as we speak. As usual, Dave and I went over a lot of information. We called out a lot of stats, dates, etc. And we weren't always correct, but we nailed it for the most part. In either case, now it's time for the usual attendance bias fact check. Attendance bias fact check. When Dave told his unfortunate story about his buddy Brian eating a goo ball with a used Band-Aid on it at Camden in 1999, Dave said that he didn't remember what Camden was called at the time. For the record, it was the E-Center in 1999. And soon after telling that story, we made a joke about Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dave jokingly asks if Dr. Fauci is wearing his shirt. This is in reference to a t-shirt that Dave and his partner designed for the 2021 summer tour. The shirt featured the doctor's face. Through a family connection, Dave was able to get one of those shirts to Dr. Fauci. For anyone looking to do a fish-based food tour of Burlington, Ken's Pizza is still in business. It's based at 71 Church Street. It has not, quote, been there forever, as Dave says. It actually opened in 1973. When discussing the summer of 1998, Dave brought up that the band began the summer in Europe, but cannot recall where the tour actually began. 
The tour began at the Grey Hall in Copenhagen, Denmark, with a three-night stand at the venue. To hear an episode of attendance bias about the third night of that run with the president of the Mockingbird Foundation, Adam Scheinberg, scroll down just a little bit and you'll be able to hear how the 1998 summer tour began. There were a few guesses thrown out there about the number of tour dates and venues during the summer of 1998. Including the European leg, Fish played 33 shows in the summer of 1998. That's also, if you count the Lemon Wheel Festival, at a total of 26 venues. Toward the end of today's conversation, Dave tries to remember if there was a full moon during the Virginia Beach show. According to mooncalendar.astroseek.com, the moon on August 9, 1998 was waning gibbous, which is right after a full moon. The website also suggests that your feet, toes, hypothesis, pineal gland, endorphins, and melatonin are particularly sensitive during this part of the moon cycle. So please make sure you take extra care of those organs and those glands. Along those lines, surgical operations are safe under this sign of the waning moon. So if you've been waiting to have your tonsils removed, wait for the waning gibbous moon. Dave guesses that the band hadn't played a single cover song leading up to Somewhere Over the Rainbow in this show. He's right about that. He also guesses that the band hadn't played the Wizard of Oz classic in about 150 shows. Amazingly, he was right about that too. The last time Fish played Somewhere Over the Rainbow before the Virginia Beach show was at Deer Creek two years prior on August 13th, 1996, which was exactly 152 shows previous. At the time of this recording, they have not played the song since. And that's it for today's episode of Attendance Bias. I'd like to thank Dave Waxman for joining me today. I'd like to thank Fish.net for extreme help with that fact check and Fish.in for providing such a great recording of Waste and Terrapin Station from today's show. If you enjoy Attendance Bias, please come find me on social media, send me a message, and I'll send you a free sticker back. Also, please spread the word about the show. Tell at least one person about the show this week if you think they'd like it. And thanks again for listening. See you next week on Attendance Bias.